Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to Psalm chapter 125. And we are resuming our series in the Psalms of Ascent, where we were just two weeks ago studying the songs of the pilgrims of the Old Testament church going up to Jerusalem for the feasts and festivals. And here we have a psalm before us today of the view or the vantage point of these pilgrims coming up and seeing the mountains on the horizon, seeing Mount Zion standing there, letting them know that their journey is close to an end. So if you would mind, please rise with me as we read God's inspired, inerrant, and life-giving word. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people, from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts, but those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can come to your word, for we are a hungry and needy people. Lord, we desire the true food of your word to sustain our souls. Lord, we come to this passage in eager expectation that you would speak to us, speak to us loudly, speak to our hearts and our discouragements and our doubts. Lord, would you give us that true assurance that only comes from Christ. And so we pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, be with us in this time. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to go on a trip to Israel, and the last few days of the trip were spent in Jerusalem, and so the last location we were at with this big tour bus was in the Dead Sea, and so we were going up to Jerusalem, and it is quite a change of elevation. Jerusalem has always been regarded as this mountain city, and so as we were going up to Jerusalem, we stopped and saw the mountains, the hills surrounding the city. And I remember standing there thinking as people were pointing out the different hills and which mountains they were, thinking, is this really it? These hills are like Texas mountains when you look at them. And I couldn't believe what I was seeing because in my mind all along when I was a child reading the stories about Mount Zion and Mount Sinai and, and all of these different hills in the Old Testament, I pictured these great magnificent mountains with astounding peaks. And yet here we have a few Texas hills surrounding the city of Jerusalem. But what we want to see in this text as the psalmist reflects on the power of these mountains surrounding Jerusalem is not their significance geographically, but it's theologically, that there is a theological point that is being conveyed through these mountains. And so the very theme that we want to think about this morning is that it is good to trust in the Lord. It is good to trust in the Lord, for in Him we find our stability We find our security, and we find an ear to hear our supplication. So that's what we want to study this morning as we examine this text. And so first we see the stability of the church in verse 1. Look with me. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, 
which cannot be moved but abides forever. Kids, try to think about something that is harder to move than a mountain. All right, I want you to think long and hard. That's probably a tough one, isn't it? It's not every day that you see mountains being relocated from state to state. The whole point of a mountain is that it is immovable. And as you think about these pilgrims as they're coming up to Jerusalem for their annual feasts and festivals, many things about the path would change. The people in their party would change. Some people would not come from year to year. Perhaps the path itself would change. The trail would look different from year to year. Even the city of Jerusalem would look different. But as these pilgrims came up the hill to see Mount Zion standing there, it never changed. Mount Zion remained unchanged. And so here there's a connection being made between those who trust in the Lord and the stability of Mount Zion. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. And so it's speaking of the stability of the Christian. Everything about the Christian life is full of things that change, isn't it? Friendships change, relationships change, jobs, places that you live. Everything is full of change. But here in this text, it says there's one thing that cannot change, and that is your standing with Christ. You're standing with the Lord. In Christ, you can say, I cannot be moved. I cannot be changed. Even in the midst of immense turmoil and suffering, you stand on solid ground if you are in Christ. For the good shepherd, he loses none of his sheep. And he says to you this day, I will lose none that the Father has given me. You cannot be moved from his hand. And of course, Mount Zion is that illustration of Christian stability because it is that very mountain that God chose to have his name dwell on. Psalm 68, he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. He built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth he has established forever. Although there may be mountains that are far taller or mountains that are far more beautiful, God chose Mount Zion to be his dwelling place. And it's that same electing love and sovereign grace of our Father that he chose us. He didn't choose us because of any righteousness of our own, but he chose us because he loves us. And so the stability of Mount Zion is found in its election from the Father and our stability in Christ is that we have been predestined in him before the foundations of the world. That decree cannot be changed. It is certain. God will accomplish it. And so do you know this sort of stability? Do you know this sort of stability? Even the feeblest of Christians can have it. You can go into death's dark night and not be moved if you know that you are firmly fixed on the solid rock of Christ. And so what we see here in this very first verse is the stability of the church. But then we note that the security of the church is also highlighted in verses 2 and 3. Read with me verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. The psalmist has gone from a specific focus on Mount Zion to a broader focus of the mountains surrounding Jerusalem. Now, there were seven peaks that all surrounded Jerusalem and gave them a sense of security. 
that if an enemy came up, it was going to be difficult through the valleys and the, the hills to, to ascend on high to take over Jerusalem because it was settled in this mountain kind of fortress. And the old ancient wisdom goes that he who has the high ground wins in the end. And there was one uh, uh, mountain fortress in the Austrian Alps that was built 1,000 years ago. And it stands today as having an unblemished record of never being assailed, never being conquered, because it is situated in these mountains protecting all around it. And here the psalmist is saying, Just as the mountains, the hills provide security for the city of Jerusalem, so too does the Lord provide that same kind of security for His people. I love how the King James translate, translates this. It says that the Lord is round about His people from this time forth and forevermore. The Lord is the protector and defender of His people. John Patton, who was a missionary to the cannibals of the South Pacific Seas, he was a missionary and he spent much time with a very hostile people. And on one night, he had an angry party of cannibals coming for him with all anger and vengeance, trying to seek his life. And so he obviously flees, and he hides himself in a tree. And that night, he could hear all of the cannibals around him seeking his life. And here is what he writes. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharges of muskets and the yells of savages, yet... I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. See, the Lord protects and defends his people. And of course, there's no more vivid biblical illustration of that than what we see in 2 Kings chapter 6 with Elisha. The king of Syria is after the man of God because he keeps spoiling his plans. And so the king of Syria sends his chariots and horses after Elisha and here the servant of the man of God comes to Elisha saying what are we going to do about this we're encircled by our enemies and here Elisha says do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them and the servant has no clue what he's talking about and then Elijah prays to the Lord and asks him please open the eyes of your servant. And what does the servant see? Behold, chariots of fire circled around Elisha. The exact same verse, same word that we see in verse 2. The Lord is circled around his people. This is what gives us the ultimate sense of security, doesn't it? It's one of the very best promises of the covenant of grace that God made to Abraham. I am your shield and your reward is very great. It's one of the very best blessings of our union with Christ. As Paul says, your life is hidden with Christ. Peter says that we are guarded by God's power until we re receive the fullness of our salvation. And Jude says that we are beloved by God the Father and kept for Jesus. God defends his people. He is circled around them. And if God is circled around us, it means certain safety. It means security. And this is so vital to understand in our lives because it often feels as though our lives are rather than being circled by the Lord, we're circled by our enemies. Perhaps it's just the society, a godless society, circling around your family. 
Perhaps it's somebody at work that is always seeking to undermine you and get people against you. It could be a multiplicity of things, but here we have this truth marked out for us that God defends His people. And so we need to be like Elisha and say, Lord, open my eyes. May I see you as my strong defender. And our psalmist, of course, is not communicating an over-idealized view of the Christian life where we go by untouched, unharmed by the harsh realities of life. No, he understands that the righteous often suffer at the hands of the wicked. That even though this promise that God protects his people, that we are stable in Christ, it still means that we will face opposition and persecution as you see what he says in verse 3. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. So when the psalmist thinks about the society around him, when he thinks about wickedness in high places, he thinks about God's promise. The promise is that the scepter of wickedness, the rule of the wicked, is not going to remain for long. God's enemies will not crush God's people in the end. He will bring final deliverance. And even though in this life we may face that fierce opposition, that tremendous power of tribulation coming after us here, we have an assurance that the scepter of wickedness will not remain on church property, but rather God will avenge his people. And so here we have this promise. Bernard of Clairvaux, who was a 12th century theologian, was known for many great writings, but he appealed to this text in justification of the Crusades as he was getting people to support the Crusades. And he said, based on verse 3 of our passage, that if you look at this, it means that uh, the wicked rulers should not remain on the Holy Land. We have to expel them. We need to rise up and attack them. But of course, if you just keep reading the rest of the verse, you know that's not how the psalmist is envisioning it to be interpreted. After all, this promise has one purpose, as you see there at the latter half of the verse, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. You see, the greatest threat to the church, the greatest problem for the church is not persecution, it's not even fierce opposition, but it's that joining together with the world. It's worldliness seeking in. It's where the righteous, under the, the power of the culture around saying, I can't do it any longer, I just have to give in. And I know many of you students are back from college, and you've felt that for very many months, where the pressure is on you to conform. The pressure is to just give in, to live as the world lives, to act as the world acts. Well, here, the promise is that God's judgment is coming against such things. And so we must remain faithful. And so here is an encouragement to live quiet and dignified, pure lives in this hostile age. And so we have the security of the church. And then finally, we have the supplication of the church in verses 4 and 5. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of being a groomsman at a wedding for a friend of mine up around Denton, and I'm not really familiar with that area. I'm not from around here, so I haven't 
driven around uh, Denton too often, but I had made sure that before I left, I copied and pasted the uh, address of the wedding venue into my Apple Maps just to make sure I got there right and made sure I got there on time because I had to be there for the rehearsal. And so as I did that, I put it in and took off about 20 minutes into the trip. I got this horrible feeling in my stomach that I wasn't going the right way. And so I pulled over, and sure enough, I was going the complete opposite way. And uh, unfortunately, that all that to say is that I missed the rehearsal. Uh, the only groomsmen to do such a thing. But what this <laughs> psalm is communicating to us is the, the importance, the vitality of being on the correct path, as we see in this prayer in verses f- 4 and 5. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. So what we have before us are two paths. The Lord does good to those who are good, those who are upright. It gets the idea of the one who chooses the straight path. The Lord will do good to them. But here on the flip side, those who turn aside to crooked paths, that do not walk along the paths of righteousness, there they will be led away with evildoers or to the place of evildoers, to that place of final judgment. So really this prayer that the psalmist offers up is rooted in the very first psalm, isn't it? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So here are two paths held before us. It's a very simple prayer. Blessing upon the faithful, cursing upon the apostates. But there's a profound question that is prompted by these last two verses. Which path? Are you on? Now, we might be troubled by the language of the Lord doing good to the good or the upright in heart. After all, Paul quotes Psalm 53 in Romans 3 and says what? He says, there is no one who does good. No, not even one. We have all turned aside and become worthless. So is the psalmist violating the principle of total depravity and salvation by grace alone? Well, of course, the good have already been identified in this passage. They are those who trust in the Lord. They are the righteous. And this is perfectly consistent and finds its fullest meaning in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For Christ himself was good. He is good. He was the only one to truly be upright in heart. He never turned aside to the left or to the right, but he submitted himself to the will of the Father. And it's that path of righteousness that led him not to Mount Zion, but to a mountain called Calvary, where he suffered in the place of sinners. It was that path of righteousness that led him to the cross. And he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, this is how we are counted as good and upright in Christ. Now, of course... That faith that trusts in Him alone is an active and lively faith, and it produces all sorts of good works. But here, the foundation, the basis of being counted as the good, 
It only comes in Christ alone. And perhaps you're in here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you're here just around the holidays to appease family. Well, the good news of the gospel comes to you in Christ and says, you can turn from your sin now. You must turn from your sin now. For there is life that is offered in Jesus Christ to you this day. So don't wait another minute, but come to him now. And while this blessing This unreserved blessing that the Lord would withhold no good thing from those who he loves. Uh, It finds its fullest meaning in Christ. So too does this warning that comes in verse 5. This warning is even for the church as well. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. He's speaking quite candidly about the very real nature of those who were once following along on the paths that went to Jerusalem every year, but now because of maybe there's another religion that's attracted them, they've gone away. They don't go to Jerusalem any longer. They're on the crooked paths. And that is a reality even in the church, where there are those among us who once professed the faith, but now have walked away. And here is a warning that comes to us even in Christ, that how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. How shall we escape? We have had the benefits, the blessings of the new covenant all around us, and how can we walk away from that? We shall not turn aside, but rather say with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Here's the blessing that is offered to us in Christ. We must not turn from it. We must be careful, careful to keep our hearts steadfast. And as we begin to close, I want to just highlight Two ways the psalm encourages us in this pilgrim life, because this is an analogy here that is drawn to the Christian life being a life of sojourning, of pilgrimage to that heavenly city, Jerusalem. And the first thing that this psalm teaches us is to be singular in our trust. I suppose it's commonplace in our day and age to commend those who have faith that as long as you believe in something, that's good. As long as you have a powerful and active belief in anything out there, it doesn't matter what it is, that's a good thing. Well, here the psalmist is clearly saying that's not true. It's those who trust in the Lord that are like Mount Zion. You see, your faith is only as good as the object upon which it rests. And so we're challenged here that we are to trust in the Lord only, for He is the fountain of all blessings. Our battle of faith is that we need to increase our love and faith in the Lord. And that's what matters. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but Christians are those who trust in the name of the Lord. Of course, to try to find stability and security in anything other than Christ and Him alone is to place your faith on sinking sand. But the one who hears the word of the Lord and does it He is the wise man that builds his foundation on the rock that is Christ. And so where are you putting your trust this morning? Is it in riches? Is it in relationships? Is it in your own righteousness? For these will all fade away. Only the solid rock of Christ will remain. And second, this psalm teaches us to seek the city that is to come. 
It's certainly true that the blessings spoken of in this psalm have an eternal dimension to them. As you read in verse 1, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. And again in verse 2, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. You see, the blessings that he's speaking of can't just be contained in this life. It overflows into the life that is to come, to that new Jerusalem where the, there is the full realization of all the promises of God that we will truly see by sight that God has surrounded us and he has kept us safe. And this metaphor applies beautifully to the Christian life. You think about these pilgrims who made their journey to Jerusalem year after year and as they saw those mountains, they knew the journey was coming to an end that they were almost there. And if you've ever backpacked before, you know that if there is a, 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 just a mere sign that says that the journey is coming close to an end, it gives you that strength to keep pushing on. And that's what these mountains were doing with the people of God in the Old Testament. And that's what the promises of God do to us here in the New Covenant. It's the promises of God that say to us that He is our God and we are His people. That He will keep us. That He will be with us. And so, when we arrive at that new Jerusalem, that heavenly city, we will be able to say with the psalmist, Lord, you have kept me stable in Christ. Lord, you have kept me secure in Christ. You have done good to me all the days of my life. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your steadfast mercy to us in Jesus Christ, Lord, that even though we have often turned away, Lord, you remain faithful. Lord, you have brought us back, for you are the good shepherd that keeps his sheep. And Lord, we pray that we would follow you and follow the paths of righteousness as we await that great day when you return. Lord, we long for the day when sin will be no more and sadness will be no more either. And Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.